we need to rethink how we configure and conceptualize race to attend to the diverse immigrant communities and the racial baggage they bring from home. So how is it that certain terms like kalu, right, which is a very horrible term referred at one point to dark-skinned South Asians, but now to the Black diaspora and to Black communities, how does that then get negotiated within the Black-white binary? Hello, Immigrantly listeners, for yet another Immigrantly experience. My name is Sadia Khan. I think of cricket when I think of sports. I watched cricket matches religiously growing up, especially those between, guess what, India and Pakistan. I'm sure some of our listeners can totally relate to it. And I used to play cricket with my siblings in Shalwar Kumis. And if you don't know what that is, just Google it and you'll see what I mean. When I watch cricket today, it still invokes certain emotions of belonging and nostalgia. It transports me to my childhood and sweet memories of sitting with family and friends. Some of us, mostly family, yelling profanities at the TV screen if our cricket team did not do well or did not win. But sadly, I haven't established a strong connection with American sports such as football or baseball. As for NHL, I think it's a different story altogether. You should check out our social media platforms and our website to know why. But coming back to American sports, I really wish I knew why I wasn't able to or haven't been able to establish that connection. Honestly, I'm really curious to know how other immigrants have adapted to sports culture in America. But to answer some of these questions and to build on my curiosities, I have invited a guest who specializes at the intersection of race, identity, gender, sexuality, class, ethnicity, and sports in America. Fun, right? Dr. Stanley Thangaraj is a socio-anthropologist and professor at the City College of New York. As a former high school and college athlete and coach, Dr. Thangaraj is particularly taken with the position of immigrant and culturation and race in sports. His latest publication, Desi Hoop Dreams, Pick Up Basketball dove into how South Asian-only basketball leagues give its players tools to cultivate their American identity. While my knowledge of sports is amateur at best, I was fascinated by the way Dr. Stanley applies race theory, masculinity studies, diaspora studies, and more to this nearly universal pastime. So let's get started. I'm so excited to have you on Immigrantly and I have a feeling this is going to be a very interesting conversation. So thank you for taking the time out for being here. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for inviting me, for including me. And I want to thank you and Ashley 
for giving me this opportunity, you know, and to use the language of sports, I'm ready to play. So let's play. <laughs> so Stad, I want to talk about so many things. So talking about the book, Asian American Sporting Cultures, I want to talk a little bit about that. You are one of the editors. It's a book that delves into the long history of Asian American sporting cultures and also considers identities and how Asian American players, they negotiate their Americanness on and off the field. Could you explain to us what American even means to folks from minority groups? That's a fantastic question. And so the ways in which myself and Constancio Arnaldo Jr. and Christina B. Chen thought about Americanness was within the realms of citizenship, right? And to think about how are these frames of citizenships uh, already racial, that even though all the people we have encountered in our world, in our writing, and in our scholarship are American by law, either born in the US or naturalized, they are not perceived as citizens in the same way. And thus outside the boundaries of sport, which is seen as the embodiment of the citizen, right? That is the practice of the citizen, someone that knows the cultural and physical abilities to be an American. And so this is where in this specific book, what we try to do is showcase the ways in which citizenship is bounded in ways in which uh, bounded as white, Christian, male, heterosexual, and so on, that South Asians and Asian Americans in general are deemed as always foreign, that we're not culturally American enough. We're not racially American enough. We're not physically American enough. We're not sexually American enough, right? That we're seen as these kind of either, you know, for the South Asian American community as the nerd and not man right. enough or right. as the terrorist and too manly and outside <laughs> the fold of respectable masculinity, right? And so what we wanted to do is to showcase how we need to rethink how we configure and conceptualize race to attend to the diverse immigrant communities and the racial baggage they bring from home. So how is it that certain terms like Kalu, which is a very horrible term referred you know, at one point to dark-skinned South Asians, but now to the Black diaspora and to Black communities, how does that then get negotiated within the black white binary? And how is it that our baggage, racial baggage is taken out in the discussions of race that already make us never a part of the discussion of race and thus not a part of the landscape of citizenship, right? And so, so what we wanted to do in this book was to showcase a much longer history of Asian Americans in sport which both looking at how US empire traveled to bring American sports to other parts that these people already came with histories of American sport, but also how the entry into the landscape of the US meant a very direct engagement with US sport. Based on your research and work, Stan, from a player's perspective, how do they grapple with this identity or lack thereof? So for players, you know, including myself, 
it is the fact that sport is about merit. Sport is about your athletic prowess. Sport is about what you can do on the field or the court. And yet every time we step on the field or the court, people cannot read our skills. It is impossible to read our athletic abilities and our merit that we have to go a bit, uh, you know, way above and beyond to prove our athletic ability, right? Whereas, you know, you see the entry of African-Americans are already deemed as too athletic in that space, that they're seen as a danger to that space. We are seen as not a danger, but as a threat to winning, that having us on the team could jeopardize the team's ability to win, that we would bring the team down not seeing as having the bodies, right? So this is where I am six foot one, 180 pounds. If I go to any gym, people see me, if they're looking specifically just at my physique, you should say that's a ball player. Right. But yet I am never given that. And let me give you an example from my racer. I was playing at LA Fitness at North Lake Mall in Atlanta, Georgia. I played at five on five, my team lost. And there was a guy who hadn't seen any of us play. He came to pick up the next team. So out of the five people that lost, he had to pick four of us to play. He picks an African-American guy who's two inches taller, a bit wider than me, then picks, and then his next pick are two African-American guys who are my height or a little bit shorter. So now it's between me and this other African-American young man. He picks the African-American man who is five, six in cargo shorts and hiking boots over me. And at that point, the players on the winning team screamed, you can't do that, man, that's racist. Because as African-American ballplayers, they knew the racial stereotype that circulated about blackness. And now they're seeing it play out, right? And so this is where there is already a racial template that is mapped onto us without our choice. It's not our choice that limits the ability for us to enter into spaces of American sport and thus into spaces of Americanness, right? And so that is why it's so important to think about how these much longer racial stereotypes hang on. They're really sticky it's hard to remove them. And that's why like for the people that know me and know how I play, I am given a chance and I don't have to perform. I can show up and they're like, okay, that's Stan. While in every other space, you know, I have to manage the long history of stereotypes from Apu and the Simpsons. Can you believe it? Tradition forbids me even to speak to the woman I'm about to spend my life with. <laughs> Has the whole world gone crazy? Nah, just your screwy country. To, you know, the scientist in the movie with the robot nerd. Let us go scrape up some female chicks. An opportunity to spread your legs. What planet is this guy from? Oh, you are a girl, right? Yes, as far as I know. Just these much, much longer stereotypes of us. And that's why even my own recognition in college was because of the dominance of Michael Jordan and the Air Jordan brand. They were like, how can we say Stan can ball? It's by saying not Air Jordan, but Arabic Jordan. Right, right. right. So it is still by association. Exactly. Exactly. 
going back to your journey you were a player you became a coach what led you to studying this field what was the trigger what was the trigger stan get it with yeah. us <laughs> so i actually went to graduate school because i got a chance to teach um african american social movements at a small college in georgia and i realized the ways in which the syllabus can empower leadership so i thought let me go to college to do that to get a phd so i can be in the classroom and so i went to graduate school to study the south asian american party culture and how it switches between bangra and ras garba oh, to then the hip hop scene right and so i started my work on that and then i realized the incredible dr sunaina myra had already done that work her book bases <laughs> in the house is basically that and i was like i'm not going to compete with this book i'm going to get completely destroyed right and so one of my mentors was david rodiger who was a former collegiate tennis player he and i would meet every week to play tennis hit the ball and talk about our projects he along with martin manalanson junaid rana and mati bunzo we had this conversation just flowing between these different spaces and they found out about my life about playing indo-pak basketball and they said why don't you write about indo-pak basketball and as a former coach and player i know how athletes are treated in higher education i was like i'm not going to write anything about sports that gives no value to my life i'm not going to do something that is going to get denigrated and marginalized they said there's been no work on indo-pak basketball how about you engage it within the realm of masculinity as a way to tease out racial belonging and i was like huh i had never thought about that right and so although i did not want to do this work to start with their mentorship allowed me to go back in and that's how i reconnected with the with the indo-pak basketball community and but it changed everything cuz for the first time in my basketball life i went in as a researcher that meant very different ways of being on the court and off the court taking notes and asking questions instead of just balling and being in the zone of a game i was always in the zone of the project and that at times came you know face to face with the demands of basketball and various issues with that and like pulled me out of the realm of loving basketball when i started to research basketball so it took me 3 years after i finished to heal to say okay now i can go back into basketball on my terms yeah i love it and i'm so glad that you are doing what you're doing because it's such an important work can you expand that conversation a little and talk about how caste plays a role in american sports within south asian diaspora This is where I think the great work of Dr. Subramaniam at Harvard, Dr. Shasta Patel at UCSD, Dr. Sonia Thomas at Kobe College and so on. They're doing the really important work on caste. And so I'm going to refer to their work to make sense of my own work cuz those are questions I didn't ask, right? But so one of the things that all of them say is the ways in which caste and class are connected in the migration narrative. that who are the people that go to affluent schools colleges in india who are already upper caste and probably brahmin who then have the social capital and the resources to travel 
That's right. And then to come to the U.S. and have that type of knowledge that allows them to get the jobs that allow for great social mobility and affluence and status that they then in turn become the voice of the community. So you see some of that play out in some of the early migration of the people that came post 1965. The Heart Seller Act opened up US borders to specifically professionals coming from Asia. And so a lot of these Indians and Pakistanis that came to Atlanta were those early stage professionals and also with higher caste status who set up shop that then in the process by setting up shop, they became the voice of the community. And they, through that voice, get to also control the boundaries of that community, what it means to be Indian American, what it means to be Pakistani American. They became the gatekeepers. Exactly, hmm. exactly. Hmm. And so that is where my book falls short, right? I just, I just don't have that analysis, even though I grew up as a Christian Tamil American whose family hundreds upon hundreds of years ago converted to Christianity, but you know we're one of the lower castes, but we're not the delete caste. So there are these hierarchies within that. And I just, I just don't do that work. And you know, that's, that's my shortcoming. You work at the intersection of sports and race, which we don't hear often, right? I mean, when I think about American sports in particular, I think about competition and crowds and sweat lots of sweat. It's like masculinity on steroids. But you've brought in academic perspective. And I want to first link it to your lived experience. I was listening to a couple of your interviews with other podcasters, and I was fascinated by how you were able to carve a space within sports realm for yourself. So can you tell us your story? So my story goes a little way, way back, right? Because <laughs> of my age. Um, so it actually starts in a small place in Southern India called Tamil Nadu Theological Seminary. And it was a place, a small college where all these young men were being trained to be Christian ministers. And my father was one of the professors there. But because of the legacies of Christianity and sport and with missionary work and sport, especially the ways in which everywhere the British or the US or the French went, sport was part of the ways in which you tamed the colonial other, where oh, you tamed the native, right? Wow. So our college campus, even though it was built on the premise of caste justice, helping poor and like really structured around interfaith dialogue. The campus every year was split into four houses based on these Christian, you know, uh, a disciples of Christ. And then the four houses would then compete to see which was the dominant house in sports. So we would play cricket, there was track and field, there was soccer, volleyball, basketball various women's sports. And so I grew up in that environment where, because of the premise of this college, I grew up as a kid while all other kids outside of our college were so focused on the academic realm. Hmm. I was engaging with folks who were of lower caste and you know the delete community and engaging with sports. So sports was such a huge part of, even as a kid who I was, but then once we came to the US, my father 
was invited to do his PhD in Boston. And so we came to Boston and in particular to Cambridge in 1981. And this was the heyday, the beginning of Boston Celtics basketball and their dominance in the 80s. And so mm -hmm. I came to a time where Larry Bird, Kevin McHale and Robert Parrish along with Dennis Johnson were key basketball figures. So I, for the first time in my life, got to know about basketball as an Indian immigrant kid. And that's what everybody in my second grade class and third grade class were talking about. It was just basketball. Every break, we would go out into the playground and shoot baskets. And so basketball, without me even thinking as a young kid, became such a crucial element of how I thought of myself, how I thought of the friendships I had, and the ways in which I connected with the local community. How did playing basketball change the way you viewed yourself? What were some of the changes that happened? As a kid, I wasn't thinking about those changes, right? I just felt like this was an easy venue and a translation into belonging, because it was just sports and PE were and games were part of everyday life that for me, there was nothing new about this. It was just go out and play and have fun. So the fun part was so crucial. It's after 1983, I went back to India because my father went back to teach after getting his PhD at the college that he helped found. And so five years there, we realized we were so unsuited academically by Indian standards like we had to know three languages, oh. really high-end science and math, and we were struggling as kids. So for five years, we tried, and then knowing how difficult it was, my dad applied for jobs and was um, hired as an assistant professor of global Christianity at Emory University in Atlanta. And so I came in 1988 and Atlanta. realized, yes, to Atlanta. What a shift from Boston to Atlanta, right? Because we came to the U.S. to Cambridge, first stop, and it's so different. It's yes. so different. I think it's one of the better places to be introduced to American culture, right? I actually felt like there was a way in which Atlanta was a bit easier for me. Really? Because Cambridge is so multiracial, but Boston always isn't. Right? It's yeah. not always a welcoming space, but there are so many immigrants that is also part of the fear. Whereas in Atlanta, I came to Atlanta in the 1980s when there were only like 5,000 families of South Asians spread all throughout Atlanta. So there was not that anxiety and racial fear, right? And so for me, the high school I went to, Druid Hills High School in Atlanta in 1988, had one other South Asian who's from North India, who was very light-skinned and was basically passing as white in which a way a Tamil could not do the same, right? And so in a school that was black and white, and I, as this other, was able to be welcomed in both circles as this exotic other, as a mm. possible brother for African-American communities, mm. right? And so, because there wasn't much of 
much knowledge when I played baseball, because I played cricket in India, and I thought it would make sense to play baseball. My favorite teacher was a civics teacher who not was also, <laughs> you, right? It's not the same. And my favorite teacher, my civics teacher, Mr. Leonard Lewis, was also the JV baseball coach. He said, why don't you come and try out for the team and play? And I thought, my favorite teacher is asking me to play baseball, which I haven't played. And so I tried it out and I realized that because there's a growing Latino community, the baseball players, especially the African-Americans, named me Pepe. Stan, you were also named Arab Jordan. Yeah, yeah. That was in college. That was yeah. in college, right? Yeah. Did these names bother you or these labels, did they bother you at the time? So as a high school kid, Pepe didn't have the, I didn't have the same knowledge of Pepe and the anti-immigrant rhetoric that comes with Pepe. This was more a term of affection that they used to make sense of me as a racial other, but also the prominence of Latinos in baseball. Pepe became a really beautiful term in that way. And so it was something that to me as a ninth grader, uh, wasn't offensive, right? Because I just didn't know enough about it. Um, but it became a way in which all of a sudden I realized my close bonds in this community were with the athletes, even though I sucked at baseball. I was horrible. <laughs> Asking a cricket player to have a glove and hit in a triangle instead of the whole field, right? Yeah, it's messed up. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm a huge cricket fan. And I oh, talked wow. about it in the introduction as well. But for me, when I think about cricket, I think about a very gender neutral, all inclusive sport, which is a different experience from, say, football or baseball in the US. What do you think? Do you see them differently as well? So the way in which cricket operates in India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, and Sri Lanka is very different from how cricket operates in the U.S. Back in those countries, it's a national sport. So there is such a stake to making the national sport have great value. And value is added upon it when it's seen as something for men by men, where men come to represent the nation. So there's much greater policing of women playing cricket and field hockey in India than really? there is. Oh, yeah. Like there's terms and slurs used for them in many ways kind of overlaps with the slurs, sexual slurs used to talk about women when they play basketball, baseball or football in the U.S. Because those are our national sports, just like. When you look at the UK with soccer or, you know, as the rest of the world calls it as football, you'll see like the movie Bend It Like Beckham, yeah. right? That anxiety about women playing the national sport. Hmm, that's so interesting. I would not have thought that maybe because I look at cricket as a fan, as an overzealous fan, right? So my perception of cricket and I used to play cricket with my siblings when I was growing wow. up in Shalwar Kameez. Believe wow. it or not, crazy, right? So maybe that's why. But this is so interesting that you bring up how gendered cricket really is in Pakistan and India. Our next partner has a product I use literally every day. I started taking AG1 by Athletic Greens because I wanted better gut health. 
and wanted a supplement that actually tastes great and also wanted to see what the hype was all about. Now I have been on it for a few weeks and I love it. Fun fact, it doesn't taste like it's super healthy. It has a kind of mild tropical taste and I actually look forward to it each morning. With just one delicious scoop of AG1, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food-sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop in a cup of water every day. That's how I take it. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com forward slash emerging. Again, that is athleticgreens.com forward slash emerging to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Hi, I'm Sadia Khan. We wanted to share an amazing new interactive game podcast that'll be fun for the whole family. If you enjoy Immigrantly, then you will love Adventure in Atacama. In this comedy adventure game, you get to help Mariela, a Mexican-American flight attendant, find her missing mother and save the world from the Atacama effect, a mysterious phenomenon that is affecting language and speech around the world. Interesting, right? Adventure in Atacama allows listeners to choose their story path at the end of each episode to help Mariela find one of the 12 endings to her story. The entire game is now available. Join in by subscribing and listening wherever you get your podcast. Coming back to your journey, Sam. So you were playing as a high schooler. And then what happened next? Yeah, so there is so much love for basketball in Atlanta because we had Dominique Wilkins, Spud Webb, and Doc Rivers, who were three incredible African-American basketball players. So for us South Asian-American young men, the Black NBA players offered us a model of how to be a man on the court and how to really perform a certain type of cool and style and belonging that were not possible in other ways. And why is this important? This is important because this incredible podcast deals with immigrant communities and immigration. And we never talk about how socialization in school from elementary all the way till you finish high school is through sports. Sports is mandatory. It is not mandatory if you have a certain disability. But even then, you're asked to play games, right? So sport is an important way in which the nation, the U.S. nation, creates an image of itself. And it instills certain beliefs and value systems that may not be the same beliefs and value systems that many kids from immigrant communities come with. So it's more about standardization of that social structure, which basically at the end of the day means approximation to whiteness and white supremacy. 
Well, while, while it's also moving away from that larger goal and national frame framework, I think it's important to bring it back down, you know, because I'm an ethnographer, I'm involved in the intricate details, mm. the little things we take for mm. granted. And why do these young men take up basketball? They, most of them grew up playing soccer and baseball. Why basketball? Because it allows them to claim the urban space as citizens. Basketball is imagined as an urban game. They're living in big cities. And so that's one part at the micro level. The other part is it's about pleasure. What is it that we as South Asian American immigrants aren't given a space to have pleasure? That we don't have these desires to be a baller and shot caller and to be able to cross someone up on the basketball court, right? Like these are intimate parts of our belief and intimate part, parts of how we grow up. And to make these intimate parts very viable and something you can see and feel, the court gives you that space. So for these young men, it was such an important aspect of what they took joy in. It was so important to them that it wasn't always about challenging racism, challenging white supremacy. It was like, I'm a baller and I wanna be read as a baller. Like I want people to recognize me as who I am and to be able to take pleasure in the movements you make that are not allowed in the stereotypical representations of our communities. Stan, is there a trade-off in that? Like when we talk about getting pleasure out of game, what are they sacrificing in the process? I think when we seek out pleasure without allowing it to be expansive, and when we seek out pleasure without gatekeepers, it becomes viable for all of us. But the ways in which pleasure is gained through American sports is through various policing and acts that are seen as respectably masculine, respectably heterosexual, and racially respectable, right? And so what that means is for these young South Asian American men and, and Asian American men, because we can't forget it's 10 years since Jeremy Lin and the Lin sanity phenomenon, right? So for Asian America in general, what it does is for us to create these boundaries of pleasure, it's through a landscape in which we have to be recognized as ballers, to be recognized as athletes, to be recognized as athletic men. And that has often meant that we consume and appropriate the same boundaries of our exclusion and our stereotype, right? So we bring in you know, race to say, oh, in this space, we can't have African-American men because they're just too naturally innate. What that then means is it disavows mixed Black South Asian men from being in these spaces that they're too Black, while mixed race white and South Asian men don't lose their hold on South Asianness. Then with regards to gender, it means that for this space to be understood as masculine, you can't have women in this space. And that is a denial of the pleasures of basketball and its claim to Americanness and a claim to connectivity with other people who are also athletes. Even for East Asian men, right? We have this notion of East Asian men being brainy and they should be doing mathematics and they should be in the tech industry. But when we think about sports, we are exclusionary. Like the American 
sports arena is exclusionary of East Asian men as well. So we are creating boundaries and we are deciding who can play and who cannot. That's right. That's right. And that's where, you know, for some of the young men I met, their idea until they played Indo-Pak basketball was that they were exceptional. They were the rare breed, the one South Asian American baller. But then they see an Indo-Pak basketball, a wide spectrum, and it allows them to see basketball skill set as something that's culturally spread across the community. That is not an exception, but can become the norm. And so one of the things you see is with the East Asian American community, this also leads the South Asian American community to use their own racial stereotypes of East Asians as nerdy and not man enough, unlike the South yes. Asian men. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So these various types of so you see how these stereotypes work always in relation to someone else. Mm -hmm. But the younger generation is shifting the public's perception of gender to the point where Harvard Business Review claims that the change is so palpable that even corporations can't ignore it. How might masculinity within American sports change with this new generation for whom gender, identity, and sexuality are quite fluid? They're fluid in many spaces, but they also are not, because we cannot forget that masculinities is plural, right? How we perform a certain masculinity in the space, how I am and how I practice it in relation to you as my interlocutor is very different from how I practice it on the basketball court if someone is talking trash to me. Right. And so the ways in which that level of uh, gender fluid, you know, representations and practices work in sport is also based on the communities you play with. So you are seeing that in a in certain spaces, men playing men in ways in which there is a commitment to caring and to you know, really providing support for each other, talking about difficult topics. But that's when it's recreational. So that is not about being young or old, but it's about recreational versus organized sport. So when I play pickup basketball here in, um, I'm in Westchester County in New York, the men I play with are some of the most amazing men I have ever met in my life who are committed to social justice, who talk about supporting those who are underrepresented, who are against sexism or in support of LGBTQI athletes. But that's because we also play recreational ball and there's a space for us to play with pleasure instead of organized ball with a clock, with referees, with a score and outcome that demand different types of aggression and forcefulness and the ways in which a win or a loss determines identity is very different than recreational sport, right? And so I think there is some changes where you see younger men engaging with support of LGBTQI communities, younger athletes, both men and women also really looking to support Black Lives Matter, talking about racism, and slowly there's also a conversation, but not as vibrant about caste in South Asian America, right? There's still such a silence, and that's what my book is really 
falling apart on. Like it fails because I don't engage with caste, right? And so what would it look like if we looked at how caste also operates to make certain sporting spaces available for some within the South Asian community and not others? I am expanding this conversation a bit, especially about immigrants in general. And then we see foreign-born athletes in sports in America, right? Despite the stereotypes and despite hierarchies when it comes to sports, athletes are still treated way better than immigrants in general. For instance, immigrants in tech or immigrants in other fields, athletes are welcomed even though we know that there are fixed number of team roster spots versus, say, immigrants in American society coming for jobs. And we know that there is no such thing as limited jobs, right? But yet we hear things like immigrants are stealing our jobs, which is bizarre. Why do you think that dichotomy exists I have a theory and I'm going to share it with you and you can tell me how right or wrong I am. For me, it seems like the the sports industry, it's a 50 plus billion dollar entertainment industry, right? So it comes down to capitalism, who can generate revenue. We've basically commodified race for American public to consume, and that's why they are pretty accepting of athletes from all over the world versus immigrants who come in other fields because they don't see that connection, that direct relationship between revenue generation and an immigrant's value added. Brilliant, brilliant point, Ed. You know, <laughs> you're on point. Uh, you know, what else can I really add um, other than the, you know, the fact that immigrants in other sectors of the economy become surplus labor, that you have so much of them that there's a level in which they're interchangeable, exploitable, and, and they, their labor is used to produce something, right? It doesn't already have capital attached to it. It's not worth anything by itself. It's always within these spaces, right? But the realm of mainstream sport and global sport, the athletes become capital on their own terms. They become a brand. They're an icon. And that circulates beyond all boundaries, right? And so this is why immigrants are incredibly attractive. And I can only speak of the NBA case because that's more of the league that I study, right? And um, it's the case that the NBA wants to expand its product and wants to circulate its product globally. And that's why they have offices in so many countries across the world, helping really start up sport. Why is that? Yao Ming. When Yao Ming as the first Chinese basketball star who was drafted high in the US, played for the Houston Rockets, all of a sudden you have more than a billion new viewers. And with a billion new viewers, you have a much wider base of consumers. And that's why Jeremy Lin was all of a sudden a local, you know, revelation. Come Shepard to Lin. Lin flips it up and puts it in. Jeremy Lin. Jeremy Lin put it exactly where it had to be for Monte Yunus. Because, whoa, we don't need the Asian to sell to Asia. We can have an Asian-American. 
that sells to Asia, right? And, and, and that's why you see their influence in Africa and so on to get these different players is so crucial. And that's why in my book, I talk about this is the NBA has been really trying to find an Indian Yao Ming because of the ways in which the league is coded as black. They need this racial other to expand the market to other places and to capture the local market of India and Pakistan and Bangladesh, right? And that's why, that's what Yao Ming did. Yao Ming was always seen as different than the black players, that he was all about the team, about community, about playing smart basketball, right? All these racially coded words. And so at this moment, you also see that same type of desire for an Indian Yao Ming to get 1.2 billion new consumers out of India. Yeah, not just that, as you said, Pakistan, Bangladesh. How do you see commodification of race impacting conversations around racism in America? I wish you would teach a class. <laughs> these, are, these are such beautiful and difficult questions. Um, yeah, so for me, I think the commodification of race is the ways in which we have lost our political histories and the political effects of our sporting practices that has become consumable, right? It becomes something that's palatable. Thus, we lose those histories of political struggle that are very key part of how we think about sport, right? That's why for anyone that's interested in Asian Americans and sport, Kathy Yep's book is pivotal where she looks at the San Francisco Chinatown and basketball in that space and how without access to all these other places and with anti-Chinese sentiment, you have the creation of new forms of basketball and where women were playing Chinese women were playing aggressive basketball that was out of bounds in every other space of women's basketball, right? And there are these deep histories of Chinese women's impact on US basketball and Chinese American women are left out of that story, right? And that's also where thinking about how basketball and how it's been shaped by African-American communities and black America is also taken out that it was something where it was played in the playgrounds. They weren't given access to professional basketball. They weren't allowed in you know, predominantly white colleges to play. So the types of nuance and creativity and the spectacularity of basketball play on the playground bled into other spaces, but we refused to acknowledge what was this exclusion of African-Americans that led to such brilliant new forms of basketball that now are just coded as basketball or as black aesthetics. But these black aesthetics have a black history, right? And that history can tell us more about race and white supremacy, right? And so I think that is why we have to really think very, very critically about how are we getting to know race and how is that race already built for the marketplace? And that's why like my newest project looks at the ways in which the stories of racial triumph in US sport is coded through a cisgendered, respectable, Christian, middle-class black man. And thus, you don't have the story of Waturo Misaka, the first Japanese American to be recruited 
to get drafted to play in the in the BBA for the New York Knicks in 1947. We don't attend to the stories of black women like Althea Gibson as one of the most incredible athletes of all times. So how can we rethink race that is not already bound in palatable ways, but rather race as these contradictions and messiness that can show us the much larger landscape that we walk in? But do you think American population, the, the dominant American population, is even ready for those conversations? I think without a doubt, yes. Because if you look at the ways in which young people were pushing for Bernie Sanders, that already shows that they're being critical of some types of some types of structure and inequality in the US. Look at the rallying by all people, young people for Black Lives Matter on college campuses, in our streets, across ethnic groups, across racial groups. Look at the ways in which you have young people standing in solidarity with trans communities, right? So I think there's absolutely this space and there is always this space for us to really build a, co a much broader coalition that makes sport in particular and the nation in general, much more expansive and inclusive of, of us all and our rights and our stories and our pleasures and our desires. So I think that possibility is there. Within the sports realm, we also see a lot of advocacy happening, right? I think it's been, what, more than five years since Colin Kaepernick knelt during the national anthem. Colin Kaepernick's protest against racial injustice seems to be gaining traction. He is expected to kneel once again and protest to what he says are social injustices to African-Americans. We've seen LeBron James tackle racism head on on Twitter. LeBron James used the entirety of his post-game press conference to one, talk about having justice for Breonna Taylor, and two, to generally highlight racism and racial inequality in the United States. We saw Bubba Wallace fight against Confederate flags being shown or displayed at NASCAR. NASCAR made an announcement that said the display of the Confederate flag will be prohibited from all NASCAR events and properties. Bubba Wallace went on CNN discussing just that very initiative. So we see all of that happening. But my question to you is, Dan, how do we ensure that social justice framework has this continuity? How do we ensure that it continues and it elevates collective consciousness beyond the field or beyond certain layers? That's a question about visibility, is that what becomes visible and what becomes a public discourse is not the realm of activism. It is the last stage of it. It's that which has been appropriated, converted, reconfigured to fit a certain type of public palette. It is not what's happening on the ground. So the, by the time we get LeBron James, we have already forgotten about the WNBA and the ways in which its players are actually standing much more expansively for Black Lives Matter that deals also with Black women and Black trans women and their lives, right? Which are talking about 
talking against the anti-trans bills circulating through a lot of our schools, right? And so we cannot forget that our stories of activism have often been done by folks who are not allowed in the realm of sport or are not appreciated in the realm of sport. And that's where with the emergence of Black Lives Matter, we know the story of Black women and their activism. You bring up such an important point because we are still focusing on gender-specific activism. It's not all-inclusive, especially when it comes to gender identity, sexuality, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's where I think, you, you know, and that's the case within the South Asian American community too, right? Where we're talking so much about the post 9-11 detention and deportation of South Asian men without engaging with what is happening to women. What are the increasing deportations and detainment of women? What are the types of racial violence that they encounter? And what is the silence in our communities towards LGBTQI communities, right? And so with the realm of sport, what you have is there is so much being done by women and LGBTQI community members that is not visible, that is not known as the public. And the question is, how can we, in order to really see a movement that does this work, be in the invisible, be in the realms that haven't been already contained, consolidated, and fully, you know, without the force of gatekeeping, right? Like, how can we be in a realm that allows us to shift and move in ways that meets the needs of all of our communities instead of being visible and bound and essentialized as this is the voice instead of this is a voice. Right, right. I love it. I love it. I wish we could continue this conversation for another couple of hours at least, <laughs> but we have to wrap up. And before we do that, Stan, I want to ask you something that I ask all my guests, but I want you to answer it within the context of your work. If you were to define America in a word or a sentence, how would you do that? Fleeting. Ah, I like that. You know, I've interviewed almost 100, and I have in fact interviewed 170 guests and no one has used that word it's so interesting yes yes, yes. The ball players in the house <laughs> let's go play ball i love it thank you so much before we go where can people find your book they can find it at nyu press which is new york university press and my book is daisy hoop dreams and my co-edited book is Asian american sporting cultures and my newest work is on Kurdish diasporas in the U.S., which you can find in the journal American Anthropologist. So thank you. Thank you, Stan. This was wonderful. Thank you. Wow, what an incredible episode. You know what? Sometimes when people say politics and sports shouldn't mix, I really get pissed because... For a lot of athletes, non-white athletes, their identity is so politicized that it's almost impossible to differentiate or to separate it from the sport itself. Today's episode was written by Ashley Linuza and me, Sadia Khan. It was produced by Kylie C. Roberts and me. Our phenomenal 
editor and sound designer is Bronte Cook. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at immigrantly underscore pod on Instagram at immigrantlypod. And guys, please check our Patreon. You can subscribe for as low as $5 a month, even $10, $25. Nobody is stopping you, right? Every penny, every dollar helps us create this amazing content. We are a small group of all women and we need your help. So think about contributing. And if you don't want to do that, then maybe write us a review or leave us a comment. Take care. Bye.